the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, got to welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a fanboy who was on Cloud 9 after seeing not just Adam Baldwin, but Robert Downey Jr. appear on screen with Nathan Fillon during this week's castle. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we reviewed the dream television reunion between Firefly stars Adam Baldwin and Nathan Fillon, but also discussed new episodes of Bones, Fringe, Supernatural, as well as our favorite comedic moments from Modern Family and Community, and depending on time, possibly Legend of Korra. And before we get into all that exciting stuff, let's go to a favorite section of everyone who listens to this podcast. News with Nico! New details emerge about the new season of Arrested Development. New details were revealed about the oh-so-anticipated return of Arrested Development as creator Mitch Hurwitz and several cast members took part in a Netflix event in Las Vegas this week. IGN and Vulture had the details on the panel, during which it was confirmed that all 10 episodes of Arrested Development Season 4 will be released on Netflix on the same day next year. Nice. The new season will no longer be in anthology form, focusing on one Bluth or extended family member per episode, as was previously reported. Rather, Hurwitz said the reboot is now evolving into becoming more like the old show again. Also, Hurwitz isn't ruling out a fifth season as well. This is great news for continued fans of the show. For more information, there's a link on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Any word on that movie, or are they not going to do that now? They haven't made any mention of the movie as of yet. I think with the new season and possibly future seasons, they've kind of put the movie on the back burner, though they haven't addressed it specifically, so it could still be in the works. All right. NBC wants to reboot The Office. Rather than just let the show die like it should, as is the natural course of television, the network is considering a complete reboot of the series as negotiations with returning cast members have stalled again. The new version would feature lots of new characters as well as some existing ones. However, this could all be just a tactic to put pressure on John Krasinski, Jenna Fisher, Ed Helms, and BJ Novak to sign new contracts. Hey, NBC, let the office die already. And why should NBC let it die? Last week's episode of The Office netted a 2.2 rating in the adult demo and just 4.39 million viewers, good for last place among the major networks and well behind a repeat of The Big Bang Theory. The magic is gone. Pull the plug. All I can say is no. No NBC. No. Bad NBC. Bad network. Person of interest nabs Amy Acker. You already know how much I love Amy Acker if you've listened to this show before, so I don't need to reiterate my massive geek crush on her. But it has been widely reported that Amy Acker has booked the guest spot in this season's highly anticipated Person of Interest season finale. 
She will play a psychologist who is put under Reese's protection when her number comes up. As I mentioned on a previous episode, Amy this season has also guest starred on both Grimm and Once Upon a Time. I can't wait to see another one of my favorite actresses on one of our favorite new shows this year. Look for her appearance on the May 17th finale. Well, that's every big new show this season. She's made it on. Wow. That's impressive. Ghostbusters 3, now a possibility for Bill Murray. Yeah, you heard correct. The ongoing drama regarding Bill Murray's role in in the upcoming long-in-the-making Ghostbusters 3 may not have been as over as we had been led to believe. In a recent interview with Chicago's WGN-TV, Murray was asked about his upcoming movie projects and said of the oft-mentioned sequel, albeit in an off-handed way, that it is a possibility. This, of course, completely contradicts what we we have reported a few months ago and was mentioned by co-star Dan Aykroyd when he said that it seemed to be almost a definitive answer that he was not going to be in this movie. He added that he doesn't want to be involved. So what are we to believe? I guess we really won't know until the, the film actually gets made and it hits theaters and we all go to see it. And either there's Murray or not, you know? So yeah. I, these conflicting stories are kind of getting old. And I'd rather just them not mention it at all. And maybe he has a secret cameo or something. That would be okay. But just put it to bed, make the movie, and let's let's see it already. Well, the process of casting Bill Murray is somewhat ridiculous. Rumor has it that there's an undisclosed number that's very difficult to get, and you use that phone number to call Bill Murray, and you leave a voicemail. And based on that voicemail, he decides if he's going to be in your movie. And that's rumor. That's rumor, what I've heard. I don't know if that's true, and that is coming from professionals who have worked in the film field. In our final story... Dick Clark dead at 82. It is with a heavy heart that I report that the entertainment icon Dick Clark has died this week at the age of 82 after suffering a massive heart attack. He had been recovering from outpatient surgery at the time when he suffered the catastrophic heart failure. Clark, host and producer of the live music dance party American Bandstand from 1956 to 1989, may be best known to our generation for creating and hosting New Year's Rockin' Eve, which is now hosted by Ryan Seacrest after Dick Clark suffered a stroke in 2004. He also hosted many game shows such as Pyramid and Scategories, the TV show TV's Bloopers and Practical Jokes, on top of earning a total of five Emmy Awards and one Peabody Award in his lifetime. Dick Clark will definitely be missed. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yep, New Year's Eve is not going to be the same without Dick Clark. So um, our condolences go out to his family and everyone who was close to him. All right, so I guess to move on to more happier things or exciting things, again, this show has kind of made Nico unhappy over the past two weeks. So here's hoping it won't be three weeks in a row. Let's now talk about the Bones episode, The Don't and the Do. A blue corpse discovered at a landfill inspires Squint Vizari's creative side in a scientific way. His results send the team to investigate a hair salon and its inhabitants. Meanwhile, Booth plans something special for Brennan, who is unhappy with her postpartum physique. This week's episode of Bones was much better, in my opinion, than what we've had since the return of the show from hiatus, because nothing ridiculous happened to obstruct the murder investigation, like Sweets having sex with Daisy behind Brennan's desk. 
Also, I thought the writers went back to applying more of the show's usual sense of realism to the mystery by staying away from Bones and Booth doing anything cutesy while performing police work, such as buying their groceries after arresting the killer of the week. Again, the birds falling out of the sky, the, the opening to this episode, was kind of ridiculous, but it was much better than, let's say, Bones walking through a prison riot under the assumption that none of the inmates would hurt a pregnant woman. And at the same time, this opening did exactly what an opening or teaser, as as people in the television business call it, is supposed to do, which is get my attention in what I thought was a very Hitchcockian kind of way. For instance, I could totally see someone flipping through channels and stopping to watch this episode just to figure out why the heck these birds were dropping from the sky. On the other hand, these same viewers could have seen the beginning of this week's domestic dispute in the next scene and click change the channel. But Brennan, being unhappy with their postpartum physique, felt like a much more natural dilemma for her and Booth to deal with instead of racing to solve the weekly mystery before Brennan goes into labor, or threatening to use her role at the Jeffersonian as a means of firing the daycare director. Plus, having this domestic issue gave Sweets something other to do than act like a lovesick buffoon for Daisy by acting as Booth's guy pal that he could take his frustrations out on. And I liked how Angela somewhat did the same for Brennan by the writers going back to a concept used in earlier seasons of Angela encouraging Bones to do something outside of her comfort zone, such as going to a spa like they did in this episode. In my opinion, tackling issues like Bones being unhappy with her postpartum physique requires the writers to look at these storylines like a sitcom, which requires strong banter, not just between the male and female lead, but their friends of the same gender, like an Angela or Sweets, in order to prevent them from becoming mundane. However, with me making that statement, I'm fully aware that the sitcom aspect is only a portion of what makes up a strong episode of Bones, because the rest of the story needs to be devoted to serious police-slash-scientific investigation. And the writers need to be very careful during the times where they mix, let's say, investigation with a domestic dispute, because it could have disastrous results, like the past two episodes of this show, or it could pay off very well, like the King of the Lab contests. Because for this episode, a mixture of scientific investigation, the character conflict that seemed to work, was Aristu's plotline. At first, I wasn't sure where they were going with him, telling everyone that he got published, but it paid off nicely to a great lesson taught by Bones about a man being better than a machine, and believing in yourself, which fit Aristu's character perfectly, because he spent two seasons faking he had a Muslim accent so people would accept his religious beliefs. At the same time, Bones pushing Ares to, to see his talents as a forensic anthropologist was a great way to bring things back to the idea that Brennan takes her job seriously after taking some very uncharacteristic risks over the past two episodes. So let's just hope it stays that way. As for issues I had with this episode, even though the use of antifreeze to kill this week's victim led to a strong scientific investigation, and the murder setting of a hair salon required Booth to use the skills he picked up on from his father being a barber, I thought the idea of the killer scalping his victim was a little too morbid for this otherwise light-hearted episode, but it's much better than any of the problems we've had the two weeks before. And I'm really hoping you agree with me on that notion, Nico, because I hate sitting here watching one of your favorite shows fall through the tubes on you. So with a heavy heart for you at you kind of feeling pain over both speed, not so great recently. Let's hear your thoughts on this episode, Nico. Dan, you can rest easy for this week as I'm not as disappointed with this episode. In fact, it was much better than the previous two weeks, as you mentioned in your analysis of this episode. What I did like was exactly what you said I'd probably like about this episode, and that was the lack of ridiculously inappropriate scenes and the return to normal for the Bones characters. 
the writers seem to steer clear of the campy, cutesy moments that have plagued the previous two episodes and really made me want to rip my eyeballs out and jab pencils in my ears after having viewed them. Luckily, this episode did not make me want to resort to any self-mutilation, though the scene with Booth and Sweets in the lingerie store was close. Yeah. I liked that Hodgins had trouble identifying the blue substance at first that was coating the birds and the remains in this episode, but ultimately proved himself king of the lab as he, with a little help from Angela's sexy teasing, was able to identify the substance as antifreeze. Though the choice of antifreeze to burn the body was a strange choice of accelerant for the disposal method, I think they mentioned this in the episode, but the flammable component of antifreeze is ethylene glycol, which is flammable at only high temperature, about 115 degrees Celsius or 240 degrees Fahrenheit, but it does not burn hot enough to dispose of a body. So really it was a stupid choice for a disposal method, but I guess that's on the criminal this week. Yeah. And not the writers, since they did address these issues in the episode. Yeah, they said so he, actually, the line was, they said he was an amateur killer. Yeah. For not knowing that, yeah. Yeah, so it was actually a good job this week on the writers being more yeah. scientifically accurate. So that actually really made me like that part. One thing I really also really liked about this week's mystery was that the killer scalped the victim. How cool is that? It's yeah, not it's something freaky you to see me. very often. Yeah, it is kind of freaky. My only question was, why did he keep the hair at the salon and not at his house where he could enjoy looking at it, but it would not attract notice? Come on, killers. You're just asking to get caught when you do stupid things like that. Plus, after a few days, wouldn't it have started to stink? Because then there was clearly yeah. still scalp tissue and dried blood that would have begun to decompose and stink to high hell by then. Still, the idea of scalping someone was pretty cool. I think it was the shock factor why they did that. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. Overall, much better than the previous two episodes, but still, there is some room to improve to yeah. get back to where we want this show to be. But at least they're moving in the right direction. So, Dan, you can breathe easy. For I now. I okay with this episode. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be for now. For now. Because <laughs> this was like, you know, it was a good standard episode, but not a great episode. And even there's good standard episodes that were better than this one. Oh, for sure. I mean, we're, we're still so, not talking yeah. season one through three here. Right. But we're not talking the last two weeks either. Right. Exactly. And did you like the whole plot line with um, Aristu, the, the intern? Yeah, I've always liked him. Yeah, I, I thought Bones' role in that storyline was really good. Yeah, it was much more the way she was when they started to come into the lab, where she's right. very strict and not very open to their little issues and really treated them all the same. And we said that it's okay that she changed a little bit in that method because right. we're seeing we needed to see her change a little bit to be able to be where she is with her and Booth. But she reverted back to a better place anyway, where she was able to see he needed to have encouragement, but at the same time was able to be strict and scientific with him and say to him, look, you need to do good work. I know you can do good work. Don't worry about fame because your actions and your, your work will speak to your quality and don't do things just for the notoriety and that was great that was yeah. that was so much the old bones and the new bones merging perfectly that that was really good whereas we've seen throughout the this season and a little bit last season we saw where she was a little bit too emotional yeah and we could blame some of that on the hormones from pregnancy and and that was right. okay i let it slide in those cases but post-pregnancy she was kind of gushy and kind of 
silly in the last couple episodes. Yeah. And so I'm glad that they made that move going back. And you're you're absolutely right. This is a re- kind of like a return to form for the characters. But again, she did it because she was she acted like a teacher here. Yes. And, and it seemed like she did it because she cared. But mm-hmm. he needed that firm hand to get over the situation that was going on with him with his ego somewhat. Right, and that's why it shows that difference from what she right. was in those first couple of seasons to where only with Zach was she ever able to show any sort of connection. Right. And then now she has that connection or that ability to empathize, but also be that strict hand when need be. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's the intelligent writing we expect from the show. Agreed. And want. So if they could just channel that and give us that more, I think they'll be okay. I agree. Um, I, I don't know if the last two people that wrote the episodes were new writers, but they need that firm hand like Brendan gave Aris to here to get the writing better. So hopefully they can take the advice from their own episode. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, I think it's time to move on to what I thought was a big turnaround episode, in my opinion, for Castle. I know we were kind of disappointed the week before, or I mean two weeks before because it was postponed. But I think this episode was well worth the wait. And I hope you agree with me on that too, Nico. So we're going to talk about the Castle episode featuring the long-awaited Firefly reunion, titled Headhunters. His relationship with Beckett strained. Castle teams up with Detective Ethan Slaughter from the city's gang unit, but Slaughter's kind of police work could put Castle in real danger. The highly anticipated reunion between Firefly stars Nathan Fillon and Adam Baldwin, featured on this week's Castle, started out exactly the way it should have, as being completely for the fans. As the character Castle partnered with, Detective Ethan Slaughter, gave us a ton of throwbacks to roles Adam Baldwin has played in the past with Slaughter falsely agreed to let Castle shadow him just to get his jacket, giving a nod to Firefly character Jane Cobb. Got the scene where he tells Castle to enter a bar filled with dangerous criminals through the front while he comes in through the back, totally being reminiscent of John Casey's relationship with Chuck. In fact, the entire first half of this episode featured scenes where Detective Slaughter's personality bounced back and forth between that of Jane Cobb and John Casey which made me love every minute of his interactions with Castle's man-child persona. Except for the one scene where Slaughter discussed checking out Alexis, because I thought it was highly inappropriate that Slaughter was checking out Castle's daughter. But I could see the character of Jade on Firefly doing that kind of thing, so I kind of accepted it, seeing Adam Baldwin do that. Plus, I think the writer of this episode, intent behind this scene, was to slowly build us up to the ultimate lesson that Castle learned in this episode, which was when it comes to partnerships, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side. With that note, about halfway through the episode, the fun of Castle riding around with Detective Slaughter wore off. Which it should have, since this new partnership begins to put our favorite mystery writer's life in danger. And in terms of the show's universe, I was glad that Ryan and Esposito's jealousy over Castle hanging out with Slaughter led to them being the first ones to figure out Castle was walking himself into trouble. Because it annoyed me that they didn't pick up on the falling out between Castle and Beckett last week. Also, I know a grown man is not supposed to use the word awesome, but Ryan and Esposito showing up to Bale Castle got of trouble when Slaughter got him in go over his head was awesome. And I especially loved it when Esposito got in Slaughter's face, because the come through and the clutch guy at Castle going toe-to-toe with the cavalry at Chuck was like the match of the century. Although, just because Esposito stepped in to save him, that did not mean Castle got off the hook. Because we got that moment I was hoping for, with Esposito knocking some sets into Castle by saying he's not going to bail him out of trouble again. 
But hey, if you thought Ryan and Esposito was mad about Castle's partnership with Slaughter, Beckett was livid. And even though Stonicotic wasn't in this episode all that much, she sure made her scenes count. Especially the session hit she had with her psychiatrist. Because I thought it took the concept of Castle acting like a jerk in last week's episode, which we really didn't like, and justified it by attributing it to the frustration Beckett was expressing here. Again, Castle reacting to the Bart break of Beckett somewhat lying to him about her feelings by partnering with Detective Slaughter was much more fitting for his character than acting like the douchebag he was in last week's episode. Since hitting the streets with a hands-on cop-like Slaughter at first seemed like a way for Castle to maintain his desire to do something that matters without feeling anything. Instead of sharing case information with some random airplane stewardess he was dating like in last week's episode. Going back to Santa Connick, making the most out of the few scenes she had in this episode, I thought the scene where Beckett stood up to slaughter for Castle by putting her job on the line really spoke for itself. And honestly, it was right up there with one of Nathan Fillon's most kick-butt scenes on Firefly, when his character Mel threatens to throw Adam Baldwin's character Jade out of the airlock. Also, can I just say, the other case we thought Beckett was working on throughout the entire episode, being revealed as Slaughter's case, paid off excellently. As Castle seeing Beckett worried about him was probably the most logical way of turning their romance back in a positive direction. On that note, I'm going to wrap things up on my end by saying that things worked out with this case on both Beckett and Slaughter's side, because it does leave the door open for Adam Baldwin to return in another episode of Castle, if he doesn't get his own show. But for now, I'm just happy that we got this episode that was made special by a bunch of actors that I love, all working together. Get with it being capped off by an Avengers preview featuring Nathan Fillon the Robert Downey Jr., because there's really not a better way to end your Monday Night of Television. So, Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of Castle, featuring a Firefly reunion that we once thought was a fantasy, but now has become a reality? Is it too soon to say I've missed Adam Baldwin? It's only been a few months since Chuck went off the air, but if nothing else, this episode reminded me how much I love and missed Adam Baldwin. Yes. Detective Slaughter was a brilliant character, both in writing and, of course, the acting. He played off the castle perfectly. Just crazy enough to be entertaining, just unethical enough to make us appreciate how good Castle and Beckett are, but in the end, redeemable because he did care about justice being served and getting the real bad guy. It would have been easy to make him completely hateable, but somehow Baldwin and the writers managed what was so successful in Firefly when it came to Baldwin's character Jane Cobb, as you mentioned earlier. Yes. Having an amoral jerk who you can't help but fall in love with. (laughs) This was a guest spot that I hope encourages more Firefly reunions on Castle. And actually, you mentioned it opened the door to have him come back later, which I think would be a lot of fun. Yes. Speaking of my favorite TV show of all time, Firefly, the whole episode was chock full of references to that good old space western, and I loved every single one. Brown coats, playing with dolls, stolen medical supplies, an airlock, I mean garbage truck interrogation, and so on and so forth. I'd hope we get plenty of Firefly nods, and of course I was not disappointed. And the case this week was interesting as well, mostly because it was a change of pace seeing the way Slaughter handles his investigations. By now, we we pretty much know how Castle and Beckett operate when solving a case, so it was nice to get a taste of something completely different. The Castle-Slaughter dynamic was so different, and Slaughter was so unpredictable, I mean insane, 
that every twist and turn had new weight or, or a new reason to watch. But also, it was nice to see the true castle return. Nathan Fillon certainly made the most of what was clearly a castle episode. Oh, yeah. We are never short of praise for his comedic abilities, and in this episode, they were just incredible. A lot of actors might have overdone this material, but Nathan, he always seems to play it just perfect. His range in this episode was particularly impressive because we got Silly Castle, Nervous Castle, Awkward Castle, Loving Dad Castle, Protective Dad Castle. I know I'm not the only one who loved it when he socked Jane, I mean Slaughter, (laughs) in the face. Yes. We, we also got Angry Castle. We got Hurt Castle. We got Terrified Castle, Slapstick Castle, Righteous Castle, Apologetic Castle. And I think that only covers half of what we saw in this episode. Yeah. It really was just a masterful performance across the board, and especially Nathan this week. But he's always great. But this was a tour de force of Nathan Fillon. Well, you know, I mean, his his buddy was on the show with him. And I bet he was really excited to have Adam Baldwin there. And... I just think they probably had a blast doing this episode. Yeah, it really makes me want to see Alan Tudyk show up and just have an off-the-wall comedy episode. <laughs> yes. Because those two love each other, and they love playing off each other. Much like Adam Baldwin and Nathan love playing off each other in this this way, you know, this more dramatic way. Alan and, and Nathan have this great comedic timing and great comedic relationship where they can play off each other. And it'd be great to see him. I know Alan's tied up right now with Suburgatory, which is a great show. If you're not watching, you should go watch that because right. I love it. But I'm sure they could get him in for a one-week well, you, thing. And it's the same network. So. It would be kind of funny if he came in as Slaughter's new partner. <laughs> They brought him back. Yeah. That castle feels sorry for him. He tries to help him or something. Yeah, that would be kind of awesome. Now, despite Beckett's reduced role in this episode, the time she was on screen made the episode. Especially that first scene where she smiled as Castle showed up in the squad room after they hadn't seen each other in a while. That really was a great scene. Also, as is her way, when Castle needed help, she put herself in harm's way both literally and professionally to help him out. And it showed that even though she was angry with him for the way he's been acting, she still had his back the whole time. I think this episode did exactly what we had hoped for it to do. Get them back on track as we saw that Beckett was worried that she had waited too long and Castle had moved on. And Castle realized that he needed to know if he could still love despite the hurt he felt. Which the line was delivered when he was advising Alexis on how to deal with Stanford. Beckett was asked the question of what she wants in this episode, and we've seen that she intends her actions to speak louder than her words, and she will be there for her partner when he needs her and needs help, and eventually wants to be with him. Castle, as I mentioned before, had to decide if he wants her so badly he can get over being hurt. Ultimately, I think the answer to that question will be the turning point in the relationship and will be the focus of the remainder of this season. I agree. And that scene she had with Adam Baldwin was outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. The only only part I did have a problem with Beckett in this episode was her speech to the bad guy yeah. at the end. She was playing the tough Beckett. I thought it was a little over the top for her in this episode, but I think it was kind of to show Slaughter that she can be tough too and kind of show Castle that she can be tough but in the right situations and remind him that just being tough does not make you a better cop. And so I think it had purpose, but it 
it was the one thing that kind of stuck out in my mind that didn't fit, even though she had, in the previous scene you were talking about, where she stood up to Slaughter and got him to turn around, you know, and come back to going after the right guy, was a very powerful scene. I thought this one lacked it. Well, at the same time, I, I don't know if this is the right word to use for it, that Slaughter was somewhat chauvinistic, or, you know, he was, he didn't really have a, I don't know, is it really right to say that he didn't have a lot of respect for women? Yes and no. I mean, he definitely played that part. Yeah. But it, it kind of came through that he might have just been doing it to solidify his just reputation, okay. and that he didn't really that's, act that way. That's what I thought. Beckett was doing was standing up to the the drug dealer or the criminal at the end. Okay. Was to show him, you know, don't underestimate me. I don't know. Okay. That that's kind of what I thought. Again, I agree with you that I I don't know if it was necessarily needed. Yeah. Or it was a little over the top. I, I think slaughter needed to stand up. He stood up to. And I thought that already established her toughness enough. Yeah. We didn't need another emphasis on it. I agree. Unless it was a setup for a future episode where that drug dealer comes back and they have to go after him. That's the only reason it would make sense to me that they did this. And again, that kind of set up this idea that maybe Adam Baldwin can come back. Yeah. And then again, at the same time, I thought Esposito had equally as good a scene was Slaughter when he went to hotel with him too. Yeah, definitely. After having to bail him and Castle out, I thought it was a great, great thing that Javier stood up to him and said, hey, look, you can't be doing this now, especially now with a civilian at your side. Well, or my buddy, kind of. Yeah, or, well, he called him a civilian, but you could yeah. tell it was, he was standing up for his friend, for right. sure. Right, which was awesome. And again, we again, I think people wanted to see that. You know, that was another thing for the fans. You know, see these really two tough characters on television that I I equally love. You know, going toe to toe. That was kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. And this episode was one of my favorite episodes of the season. And I've got to say, I said it before, I love Adam Baldwin and can't wait to see him on his next project. And I hope, like Zach Levi, we see Adam Baldwin in a new series next year because he deserves to be the headliner in his own series. Much like Nathan Fillon got Castle to be the real headliner, whereas Firefly was an ensemble cast and he was the leader of that. This time, Castle, it's him and Stanakotic and they it's their show. Right. And it'd be great for Adam Baldwin to get that recognition because he is good enough to carry his own show. Well, and I'm wondering if ABC did that so other people could see his face because they might have something in the works. I don't know. Because, I mean, it's they, did, a possibility. they did do that with the two-parter with Dana Delaney that they did on Castle. You know, they, they put her on Castle and then Body of Proof came out the next year. That's true. So audiences knew who she was and they put her in that genre. Well, Dana Delaney's a different Right, exactly. She, she had had a lot of other success before Body of Proof and had also been on another ABC show. She was a full season guest star on Desperate uh, Housewives. Desperate Housewives. Thank you. I couldn't think of that terrible show, <laughs> which Nathan was actually on. So. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's just my most recent example of it I can think of. Okay. okay. Sure, I can find somebody of an actor that was got the level of Adam Baldwin that's done something like this. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I, I really could see you know ABC using this as almost like kind of a back or pilot thing for him. Not saying that Slaughter would get his own show, but that, you know, he might be on some other project. So okay. people could be, oh, I saw my castle for those people that might have not watched Chuck or Firefly. Okay. Again, who hasn't watched Firefly, right? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of people didn't watch it at the time it aired, but since <laughs> then, they, they at least have gotten yes. caught up. 
Yeah, did you get a chance to see that Avengers promo at the end? I did. I, I posted okay. it on our Facebook page. So so if anybody missed it, they can go on our Facebook and Google Plus and Twitter feeds and find it there. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed that because that, that brought, brought a smile to my face too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, actors that I love being together, and they were all kind of together within the same hour. It was a lot of fun for me. And at this moment, I was just smiling the whole time throughout this episode. And by the way, I'm going on and on about it. You could tell I really love it. And we could go on about it all day. Yeah, so it was a much better Monday night this week. <laughs> yes. Then yeah, we needed this, desperately. And it's unfortunate Castle won't be back next week, but it prolongs the season finale, which is a good thing because we'll be sad once the season comes to an end. So with that, I'm going to take this awesome castle discussion to an end, sadly, as we're going to move on to discussing the Modern Family episode, The Last Wait. Claire tries to console Luke after a friend of his dies. Alex bonds with Phil. Haley throws a party behind her parents' back. Cameron's father comes to visit. My modern family memory for this week was a toss-up between Jay and Cam's dad doing an impression of Cam and Mitchell's laughs to see whose laugh got a higher pitch, and Manny acting as the chaperone of Haley's unsanctioned party. Oh, and my condolences goes to the Dumphy family on the passing of Walt. He will be missed by here. He will be missed by us here at ATA, especially after he was the highlighted funniest part of last week's episode. So it's sad to see him go because I really enjoyed the character. So with that, Nico, what was your Modern Family memory for this week? Yeah, my Modern Family memory was everything Phil did this week to try to have a special moment with Alex, especially trying to make a pregnant waitress go into labor to be the (laughs) ultimate day together. Luke was great as usual, and Cam's dad and Jay were all right, but Phil was the best, so he takes the cake again this week. And I love the payoff of him writing uh, Alex's initials on the diner sign. Yes, very good. That was that was awesome because, you know, it was the Moonbeam Cafe and he was talking about that the greatest dad ever who was the astronaut that put his daughter's initials on the moon. So that was the closest he could come to doing that. And it was great stuff. And it was all around a great episode and a lot of fun. So with that, let's move on to talking about the other sitcom that's a lot of fun that aired this week. And that's Community with the really well done episode, Virtual System Analysis. Annie and Abed spend some quality time together in the Dreamatorium for a simulation of Inspector Spacetime. The game soon transforms into an examination of not only the study group, but also a deeper look into Abed's mind and personality. My community chuckle for this week was Annie and Abed's entire adventure in the Dreamatorium, especially when they were playing Inspector Spacetime. Hilariously trying to pull off the British accents that you would find in an episode of the show that community was spoofing, the ATA favorite, Doctor Who. However, even though this community episode was designed to be a spoof, I have to give the writers a ton of credit for taking things kind of serious to show their admiration for the popular long-running BBC TV series by having Abed experience the satisfied character soul-searching that occurs on an actual episode of Doctor Who. By the way, I've got to ask, who would totally be up for Alison Brie being the Doctor's companion? I just really, in my opinion, think that after this episode of Community, she really has the look and personality for the role. So with that, I'm going to pass things out to you, Nico, with your Community Chuckle for this week. Yeah, my Community Chuckle for this week has to be Abed playing all the roles of his friends in the Dreamatorium. In fact, the entire sequence in the Dreamatorium was great, and one of the best lines of the episode was when Annie said, I think I broke Abed. Yes. 
Dan, I have to agree with you about Allison Brie. I love her as Annie, but she is she has the potential to be so much more than just Annie. And if she were to show up on our favorite Time Lord show, I agree. She'd fit right in. Yeah. She's great. I love I love Allison Brie. She's a lot of fun. She's funny. She's a little geeky and nerdy. So yeah, she's she's great. Yeah, and did you really feel the same vibe I did? I really thought that, yes, they spoofed Doctor Who, but really went for the like, depth and heartfelt thought that they really put into actual Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, I can see that as well. Uh, just like that whole kind of, I don't want to say, maybe the best way to put it is cerebral trip through Abed's head. Yeah. That what made him the way he was. Um, I just yeah. really thought that was a great, it was similar to a great character study episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, for sure. All right. So are you ready to move on to that show that really takes a cerebral trip through characters' minds? Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to a show that got a fantastic episode, that once again blew my mind, that took things to another huge level, and that's Fringe with the excellent episode, Letters of Transit. In the year 2036, a new fringe team takes on the Observers in a war that will change everything. But to win, they must resurrect a legendary figure from their past, someone who holds the secret to defeating the Observers once and for all. This week's episode of Fringe started out very similarly to the Terminator franchise, with a synopsis being run across the screen, explaining that in 2015, the Observers stopped observing that took over the world, defeating the fringe team in the process. From here, we enter the year 2036, where we are introduced to Etta, an agent, a part of a new fringe team, who I immediately figured out to be Peter and Olivia's daughter, based on her having the telepathic abilities, which she uses to prevent the observers from reading her thoughts. And unlike her mother back in season one, who was plagued at that point of the show with no personality, I thought Etta was a fringe agent that we could immediately latch onto, since she seemed to take much more after Peter, even though there were little flashes of Olivia and how she performed police work. Again, the actress who played Etta had a lot of help in selling her character to the audience, with familiar but yet older-looking faces appearing in the future, such as Broyles and Nina Sharp. And in my opinion, having these supporting characters appear was a nice way to bridge past and future. But what made me willing to stay in 2036, even though it's really not going to stay that way, was Walter being able to be a part of this world through the process of ambering himself and the rest of the French team, for some reason that has yet to be explained. I mean, Walter was a huge part of why I became interested in watching the old French team, and he had the same effect on me with this new team, especially when Etta and her partner had Walter at the train station, where he slipped in the classic Star Wars line, these aren't the droids you're looking for, when faking out a guard working for the Observer. Although I can't give all the credit to the past in accepting this world run by observers, because the future played a very important part as well, in the form of Anna's partner Simon, another one of this show's trademark memorable one-off characters, who did an excellent job of explaining the destruction caused under the observer's rule, and made a huge sacrifice to remove Peter from the Amber, realizing that he is the true hero of the story, aka the only person who could save the universe. At the same time, Simon's sacrifice fit perfectly into this show's big overarching theme of a father wanting to be reunited with his child, or vice versa. Again, I normally say son when it comes to talking about Fringe, but with Etta in the picture, it's now child. 
Anyway, with Simon telling that story about how his parents being killed made him want to join the French team, fit right in line with a lot of the rash decisions or sacrifices that a lot of the more heroic characters have made on this show. Because he realized that he could never be reunited with his family again, but he could at least help Etta be united with hers by ambering himself in Peter's place. Moving back a step, during these scenes where Astrid and Peter were freed from the Amber, there was a lot of hints regarding plot lines for the rest of the season, and maybe season 5 if we get one, such as the shocker of William Bell also being shown in case to Amber, and Dr. Bishop talking to Astrid about Bell doing something horrible to Olivia, which apparently Walter got revenge on him for by this episode, by chopping off Billy's hand to access the machine that can send the observers home. Also, the pieces of Walter's brain that he had removed, now being restored, seem to give us little hints that his Walter-like personality might have been restored. And that especially went for the really quick exchange that occurred when he snapped at Simon for telling him that the world is in need of his imagination. Finally, I'll be honest that I got a little teary-eyed when Peter came to the realization that Etta is his daughter, now all grown up. Because from my standpoint, it just brought everything that has occurred on this show full circle for me. Because I just felt for Peter, wanting to so desperately find a family to be a part of over these past four seasons. Could see this character that I love turn around to give his daughter the very thing that he spent his life fighting for was just incredibly fulfilling. Yes, as you probably have figured out by now, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode of Fridge, but it did leave me asking the question, why go to the future now? I'm sure knowing how talented these writers are, that it's going to make sense once the season is over. But leaving us with this huge cliffhanger in the future of where is Olivia to go back to present day Fridge is kind of different for a sci-fi show, especially when it jumps back in time without necessarily giving us an explanation. I guess the most I can make out of this decision right now is that the modern-day Fridge team stopping David Robert Jones caused the Observer invasion, and Peter, in the future, is going to use the machine, kind of like he did at the end of Season 3, to tell his past self to stop Jones in a different way. Or maybe Jones's endgame involves a part that they need in the future for the device that will send the Observer's home. At this point, if either one of those crackpot theories is correct, then the season finale, if Fridge gets a short season 5, will end with the present-day Fridge team defeating David Robert Jones. But the observers will be left to deal with as the threat for season 5. And if the season 4 finale is the series finale, the writers probably have a way to defeat David Robert Jones and the observers with one stone. The good news is, with the time jumping to the future being brought into play with this episode, the writers of Fridge can still give us the original ending they had created, without relying on all the episodes needed to fulfill a five-year plan, much like what Joss Whedon did with the series finale for his short-lived Fox show, Dollhouse. So with that, Nico, and all these new things to think about with Fridge, what was your thoughts on this fantastic episode? I loved this episode. I'm sad that it is only a one-off episode in the future, much like the last time they went to the future being essentially a one-time deal. I felt that they could very easily have shifted the entire story to this new setting as the finale, and that could have made for a great series finale if they had defeated David Robert Jones in the third-to-last episode and then had this time jump to the future and defeated the Observers in a great two-part series finale. 
But they didn't go that route, and thus we get this amazing one-off episode that was easily one of my favorite episodes of the season and of the series. Yeah, I loved this episode that much. Yeah, Why, you may good. ask? For many of the reasons Dan has already said, and more. Yes, I too knew that Edda was Peter and Olivia's child almost instantly, especially when she had abilities. But still, the way they progressed the episode made me still want to see how it all went down, and whether Walter would remember her, which he did, and whether Desmond from Lost would figure it out. Simon, you are my constant. Anyway... I think we can assume that Edda's first stop after defeating the Observers would be to return to Simon in the Amber and rescue him. Because I'm pretty sure, despite their 16-year age gap, there was some major googly eyes going on between them. And I enjoyed seeing the chemistry between these two great characters on screen. Great stuff, guys. Great stuff. And you know, Fringe has always been great at creating well-developed settings. The alternate universe is a prime example of that. And in Letters of transit this episode we were plopped into an unspecified i think possibly different universe or timeline in the year 2036 and it's in a i just you're blowing my mind again because now this could honestly be another yeah see it could be another reality another timeline and we end up in an orwellian existence where the observers were done observing and focused on having us as humans serve them Up until this episode, I'd always thought of the Observers as good guys. Cuddly, bald teddy bears is the way IGN described them. With social anxiety disorders. But tonight, they were mean son of a bitches. And they were awful horny. All they wanted humans for was for sex slaves. And... Well, slaves in general. It was really a change in character. But sometimes great villains are the most unsuspecting ones. Indeed. The observers we saw tonight were clubbing to dark electro tunes and groping ladies of the night while wearing sharp suits, you know, trying to be stockbrokers and hornballs. Madmen. <laughs> yeah. But they weren't unopposed, luckily. As is the case with all dystopian futures presented by film and television, they faced resistance from people seeking an end to the oppression. The Fringe Division, unfortunately, had been relegated to keeping the peace among natives, or the people that were left over after the bloody uprising. But there were a couple agents who remembered legends of a force from the old days, and at least one who believed a myth that those super agents from the past were still out there somewhere. And guess what? They were. Yes. I also loved that they pulled the old Han Solo trick to bring Walter and later Peter back into the fold, replacing, of course, Carbonite with Amber and Harrison Ford with John Noble. Seeing Walter encased in that solid orange, almost jello-like mold was awesome. Let me say. And the reverie with which he was treated by the future fringe agents, Simon and Etta, was awesome. Just purely fantastic. Because it showed us that the future loves our fringe guys as much as we do. And that in this timeline or universe, our fringe team has or was loved and respected as in the other side's fringe team is now. And they were recognized as the heroes they are. I remember a couple episodes, Dan, you were saying that you really wish our side got that recognition. Right. And I think in this episode, we, got we see that they do. And that was cool. Well, when Simon had the Twizzlers yes. for Dr. Bishop, that was awesome. And then I loved Broyles, the older Broyles expression, later on in the episode where he saw the Twizzler. Yeah. When he found yeah. out everyone was on case and he kind of had this 
nice smile about him like all right yes this is you know one for the good guys here yeah so that was exactly. great yeah it was great and and when he picked it up i knew a little smirk was coming and yeah. we were we got that payoff and it was great yes now you asked about Olivia, and I think they left her out of this episode on purpose to keep the idea that she has to die to save the world still alive. I don't think they will kill Olivia in the finale, and if they do, it will be a self-sacrifice for her daughter and Peter. Oh yeah. But I'm hoping she survives because I'm I'm a softie, you know. Yeah. I want her to survive. Well, we wanted that romance to work out so bad. Yeah. That it'd be kind of crappy if it ended that way. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, they didn't mention Olivia because that keeps her future still in flux and in in the current storyline timeline. And that was a smart move on the writer's part, for sure. So as we move into the last three-episode homestretch, I I really just can't wait. And at the same time, I'm sad to see it come to an end. I really hope we get that Chuck treatment at the end of the season where they tell us we get at least a shortened season five. But... I'm not sure yet. I'm just waiting for that moment when Fox says, okay, we're not completely retarded. I still think we're going to see that future again. I do. Okay. Because the finale is two parts, and I can see part one taking place, you know, in our time, and part two taking place in the future. Okay. There's some reason why they brought this future story in to address something for the finale. Okay. Because why would they do this now than at the end? Do you know what I mean? I do. And this episode could have made a great finale, too. I think they set this up on the idea that if they had a continuation of the story, but not necessarily, you know, it'll be just a one-off if they don't get renewed for next season. But the the themes and the ideas in it don't go to waste because you can always think, okay, these people would have been heroes or will be heroes in the future if the need comes, you know, and... So my dad and I were talking and we thought maybe that's the way they end the series is to just they know something's coming in the future. So they amber themselves with the idea that if something threatens them and they ne- they are needed, they can be brought out of the amber. Now, what did you make of the whole Dr. Bell showing up in the amber business? I think he's still alive because when Peter reset the world, he had not died. And he was over on the other side living the way he was before Olivia came over. And since he didn't have to help Olivia get back, he didn't end up dying. Okay, well, it sounds like he did something. Oh, yeah. I think that he did because he was still alive. He still tried to get Olivia and and use her abilities and somehow he crossed the line and uh, either betrayed her or betrayed or used her in a means that was immoral or you know goes totally against what yeah. he and Walter wanted intended. and what they intend yeah intended and Walter felt completely betrayed by that and has always felt that he was his enemy or not enemy but had betrayed him and was no longer trustworthy. Now, could that be why they ambered themselves? Was that there was an altercation and whatever went, was going on in the argument, Walter thought the only way that he actually could stop him was to amber all of them? No. I, okay. well, I mean, it's possible, but no, that's not what I see. I see as they, okay. they ambered all of them so that they could get okay. through this occupation by the observers or wait until a time like this when so they were not okay. captured and not killed or their minds were not read. You know, it was a, essentially a way to keep themselves free from the observers. Okay. And let me ask you this. If it's the end of the show, are we going to see Nimoy appear one more time? 
I don't think so. Okay. The only reason is he has pretty much retired. Retired. Although I did hear an, an interesting interview with with John Noble from IGN, and where he was talking about working with Leonard Nimoy, and it could very well he had, he was talking about it as in the past, but all the episodes have been shot now, so he may have been hinting yeah. that they did do one more. I just don't know because he had said he's Nimoy had said yeah. he's retired from on-screen acting. He still will do some voiceovers and things of that nature and some documentary narration, but other than that, he's pretty much retired. Cuz I mean I I would accept it. I mean, I know he said he's retired and done, but that that you know, I think it would be fine if he broke the rule just because the show was going off. They get away with that and say, "Well, there's no more there's not going to be any more fringe." So, you know, I just broke the rule the one time because, you know, it was going off and there's going to be no more fringe. Well, right. I mean, there's no rule that says once you retire yeah, you can't, you can't ever work. come back one more time, yeah. Cuz people yeah. talk about it like it's like the big rule that, you know, Leonard Nimoy has that now that he's retired, he's never going to come back. He's just going to do voicing. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think he's done. I think mm. like maybe he would do this like you said, but I think he's done. He won't take any yeah. new jobs because it's just a lot of work for an old man. He worked a long time and loved what he did, but now that he's found you know something he loves in retirement, maybe he's not going to come back because he's happy with what he's doing and, and doesn't want to get up and, and work for 12-hour days or 14-hour days or have to be in makeup and, you know, and working and doing this the same scene 12 times so they get it from every angle you know so he's beyond that he doesn't want to do that anymore yeah Yeah. it just it just them had to hit to get it like you know makes my bride start going there because i mean i never thought we were going to see him again after that episode where he was possessed by olivia and he supposedly you know sacrificed himself in that episode so this is bad because really i love this episode but all this future stuff it tempts me to want to see more Oh, yeah, for sure. Instead of accepting, oh, this is going to be over. There's not going to be any more of it. Yeah, I really wished that they had gone all the way through to the conclusion at the end of this and we would have seen them yeah. beat the observers. But I think we can assume that once once Peter and Walter are on the case. <laughs> well, I mean, it's probably it's probably maybe a move to put some pressure on Fox to give up that last little 13-episode season. Who knows? So anyway, I think it's time to move on to discussing another show that had an episode that I didn't like as much because I watched this episode of Fringe that we're talking about, and I think it just... Maybe I should have watched Supernatural first because Fringe was so good that this kind of just didn't seem as great to me. So we'll talk about this episode of Supernatural, the title of Grave Importance. An old hunter acquaintance calls Sam and Dean in to investigate a haunted house, but when she disappears before they arrive, they discover that a powerful ghost inhabits the house. This week's episode of Supernatural gave us something that we haven't had in a while. A Bobby-centered episode, with him acting somewhat as a ghost in training, learning how to communicate with Sam and Dean from the ghosts in the very same haunted house that the Winchesters were investigating. On that note, all the explanation into the physiology of the ghosts that exist within the Supernatural universe for Bobby's so-called training was interesting, but seemed to give this episode a much slower pace, since it required a lot more talking than action. Meaning, I would have rather had more moments in this episode where Bobby was trying to come up with ways or attempting to talk to Sam and Dean from the great beyond, like that scene with the fog on the bathroom mirror. 
Plus, after all that explanation got what it meant to be a ghost, I was still kind of left very unclear on what allowed Bobby to appear in front of Sam and Dean or let Malone communicate with them, because helping the boys certainly wasn't a vengeful thing, which the ghost sitting at the bar that Bobby spent an awful long time talking to claimed as the only emotion that allowed them to appear to the living. Again, I did watch this episode after recording two podcasts with Michael. You're watching an outstanding episode of Fringe, as I said before. So I might have just overlooked this information. But at the same time, you know, this might be asking a little too much. But I really wished Annie, the Hunter character in this episode that became a ghost, was a character we've seen before on this show, who died, like, you know, a Joe or Ellen. And explained that some weird mystical thing happened to get them trapped inside the haunted house as a ghost. I mean, don't get me wrong, Annie was written as a strong character, and I agree that Bobby really needed someone to talk to that he knew was Sam and Dean not being able to see him, especially when it came to Bobby explaining why he stayed on Earth as a ghost instead of going with his Reaper. But I think that would have come off much better if it was a character that we knew before this episode. Also, and this may be just me being nitpicky, I had a hard time buying it to Annie, having this whole sexual history with Dean, Sam, and Bobby. I mean, it made a funny joke, but still drove me crazy that she was a character who knew the boys oh so well that was never mentioned before. Because I felt it blew a whole major theme for this season, centering on Sam and Dean feeling like they had no one to turn to after Bobby's death. I mean, they've had hunters to team up with, but Garth, who was the hunter they teamed up with on the last episode, was one thing because he was an adept hunter. And so it still maintained this idea that Sam and Dean were kind of on their own. But someone like Annie, it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't call her for help. I mean, she seemed like a really like a really well-adept, knowledgeable hunter. And if Sam and Dean were in this much trouble, I don't get why they didn't call her for help, especially if they both had a strong relationship with her. This was kind of weird. Moving on to the ending of this episode, I thought the writers set up a pretty strong debate for longtime Supernatural fans as we head into the season finale on who is right about this coming back as a ghost business, Dean or Bobby. Basically, I can see where Dean is coming from with being upset over Bobby's decision to become a ghost based on not wanting to lose him again, especially when things for most of the ghosts he's hunted have ended badly. But at the same time, I get Bobby feeling that there's still work to be done. Because if John Winchester is willing to climb out of hell to kill the yellow-eyed demon, then Bobby would most certainly stick around to defeat Dick Roman. Especially since Bobby has been more of a father to Sam and Dean than John has. And that right there makes him almost have a right to defeat a big bad on this show, just for that purpose. And really, if this season is Bobby's last on the show, I can't think of a better way for him to go out than attributing or causing Dick Roman, the big bad, Leviathan's demise. Finally, I'm just going to end things by saying that this was a much better episode than I made it sound to be, since this was nowhere near a soulless Sam episode from season six. Now, the concept of Bobby as a ghost in training led to some great scenes with Jim Beaver, who I've really missed during the second half of the season. But this episode's plotline wasn't what I personally expected for the actors return to this show. Again, Michael attributed this opinion on my part to the way the second half of the season has been laid out, with episodes being sprinkled inconsistently over multiple hiatuses. But really, I think just my gripes about this episode was just my personal preference. So with that, I pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this episode of Supernatural and the debate that was set up over Bobby becoming a ghost. 
Dan, I think for once I'm going to, again, think that an episode was good and you maybe a little less. I thought it was another great episode on a Friday night. First, I loved Fringe and had lots of fun with that great episode. Then I got what I thought was a great episode of Supernatural, which I've not really said in the past season or two. I, I was surprised, as you were, that the writers named this Annie lady, who I've never heard of prior to this episode, and gave her a relationship with all all three of the guys. But Dan, I did not have an issue with her not being around or someone to lean on because it seemed like she had a much more intimate relationship with Bobby and it was just a one night stand with the two boys. Okay. And that's not someone you turn to or lean on for support after the death of your mentor, pseudo dad, best friend. But they were kind of desperate. Yeah, but I still don't think you turn to to someone you had a one night stand with. So I was all right with her being introduced as a former flame of Bobby's and you know, a one night stand to the boys. But what really surprised me was how quickly they killed her off. I understand it because it gave Bobby someone to talk to for the episode and share the incorporeal experience. So I understand it, but she died before the splash screen. That was kind of surprising. I was disappointed with our friends over at IGN for making a stink about the fact that women hunters don't last very long on this show and women in general are killed too often. And my only response to them is this then don't bitch every time they give one of the boys a love interest because it's not you, and they won't kill all the women off the show. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your boys single and still available for you to date, even though they're fictional characters, and you can't have a bunch of women hunters going around, otherwise one of them's going to fall in love with one of them. Anyway, getting back to the episode. Had it not been a Bobby-centric episode, this would have been a way too slow of an episode to carry the show. But because of the Bobby and Annie twist, it really actually did work. I thought it was an interesting idea that a ghost was killing and trapping his victims to be his playthings. And so he could torture them in death and continue the domination into the afterlife as ghosts. This was a great idea that would have been missed if it were not for the Bobby and Annie aspect, which I thought was really cool. Watching Bobby learn how to move things as a ghost was both humorous but also sad. We, as the viewers, had been used to seeing Bobby as a much more capable person. And yeah. he had he himself had been used to having things under control. I'm not sure why Bobby didn't try the Zen method prior to this point, but I'm guessing it just didn't fit with his personality. Yeah. In any case, the moment when he finally was able to connect with the boys via writing on the mirror, it felt earned, and it was a relief as well. So it was very well written into this episode. Yeah. And it was a great way for the characters and the audience to both kind of feel that relief and to really feel that emotion, and I thought that was well done. Also, Jared and Jensen played that scene very well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I also didn't quite understand, as you did, Dan, why Bobby was suddenly able to be visible at the end to Sam and Dean. Yeah. But the emotional reunion when they could see him again was worth it. Yeah. So my guess is that whatever the main ghost tried to do to him ultimately gave him strength, and that allowed him to appear to the boys. And that's really the best I could come up with. It's kind of like the idea that because he defeated him, he got his strength. Maybe. He was trying to kill him at the moment when he was killed. And so maybe some of the power that he had taken from killing those other individuals was transferred to Bobby. And that gave him the strength to then overcome this this barrier, the visual barrier. Yeah, very possible. It's not the only show on the air right now that's trying to do something like that. (laughs) Yeah. 
My final point, while it was great to see Jim Beaver on the show again, it is a little worrisome to think of Bobby being relegated to a ghost sidekick role. Yeah. Not not just because it could devolve into some sort of magic way for them to use his ghostly abilities to easily solve problems. I think that would be the wrong way to go with it. But the show's mythology has been that ghosts eventually deteriorate. They even mentioned that in this episode, becoming the malevolent spirits that the Winchesters have to fight. And I'd hate to see that happen with Bobby. Hopefully they can avoid that trap and figure something out for a fitting end to one of our favorite characters. Otherwise, this could go very far from what we, we, we're liking it now, but it could go way to the extreme where we end up hating that they ended up turning him into a ghost. Well, well, Sam argued at the end of this episode with Dean that they could fix it, that they could find some way to work this all out, which I, in the past when they've said that, especially when Dean was dying, that didn't necessarily work. But maybe this time they figure it out somehow. The only problem is they burned his bones. I mean, it's not as if they can put his spirit back into the body. Uh, and yeah, even I don't know then, what they could do. It would have deteriorated. The body would have decomposed by now. So I just don't see it. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to make it work. Yeah. Well, now, would you be okay if he like went up to heaven? Oh, yeah. If they figured out how to pass on? Go. Okay. It, it, that's the way it should go. I, I don't think just because he yeah. was a ghost. I think that... He can't get there by himself. He's okay. going to need help. But yeah, I think that that's the way it needs to go. Even though he stayed and became a ghost, I don't think that that should be a stopping point. It, it's like his own little purgatory, you know, and eventually he will go to heaven when he is either vanquished or, or released. You know, yeah. in this sense, he's a good ghost, so he'll be released from this purgatory and be able to go to heaven. And I think maybe ultimately his reaper will come back to him if, you know, he's sent by either sure. death or God. Or right. how- yeah, yeah, there could be something with God. There could be something with Cass and angels. Yeah. That could get him up. There's a million things they could do. Right. But anyway, I thought this was a great episode that surprised me this week, and it was well done. Yeah. Again, I, I don't know if it wasn't what I wanted this week or whatever. I just wasn't, like, you know, really overly excited about it when it was over. You know, not that I'm saying we'd give up with the show or was upset or anything. I was just kind of like, oh, okay. You know, it didn't really excite me either way. I guess that was the deal with it. I was happy Bobby was back, but, you know, there's still a lot of answers. I mean, I just felt like this was, you know, starting story threads, I guess, where I, I didn't feel like I, I got enough of a beginning to the story or enough of an end to be able to really comment on it because I just, I don't know where it's going with Bobby right now. There's too many ifs right now with that. And I'm sure they'll, they'll get filled in, those gaps will get filled in as, you know, we get closer to the season finale. But right now I'm just not sure where it's going, so that just kind of made me impartial to the end of this episode. But again, I thought the ending was really well done, and I thought Dean's feelings at the end were warranted and made sense. So with that, it's time to move on to a show that I really, really badly want to binge on on Netflix, but I know I can't because the show's just started airing. But every time I watch an episode of this, my mind is going crazy with theories that I just want more to fulfill that obsession for that strong desire for answers. So let's talk about the Avatar, the Legend of Korra episode, The Revelation.
While the fire ferrets are training for the championship tournament, they are told they need to raise 30,000 yuans in order to be in the tournament. Bolin decides to get money by having his fire ferret, Pabu, perform tricks. He is soon convinced to do some security work for the triple threat triad in order to get money. However, it turns out to be a ploy and he is captured and brought to a secret location by the Equalists. Korra and Mako try to trace him down and end up at an Equalist rally where Amon, the leader, is set to unveil the revelation, his plan to end bending once and for all. I liked how this episode of The Legend of Korra started, with an old-fashioned film reel being used to recap the events of the past episodes, because it really captured and sucked us in to the 1920s early Industrial Revolution time period that the creators are going for with this show. Another great scene that really captured the early Industrial Revolution feel was when Mako earned tournament money for the fire ferrets by using lightning bending to run a generator in a power plant. Because there was something just highly fascinating to me about this fusion between fantasy and machinery that made the concept of benders providing Republic City with its own electricity a really cool idea. On the flip side, Bolin deciding to raise money for the tournament by having his ferret perform tricks was a return to the comedic antics that we've come to expect from the Avatar series. Can you say Sokka, anyone? And in typical Sokka-like fashion, Bolin's money-making scheme gets him into trouble, as agreeing to do security work for the Triad gets him captured by the Equalists. And as you can imagine, Bolin going missing leads to Korra and Mako going out to search for their teammate on her polar bear dog, which results in this breathtakingly animated chase where the young heroes ride after a bunch of Equalists on motorcycles. And Korra discovers their ability to temporarily prevent a bender from bending. And in my opinion, having this capability is incredibly frightening because it's only something that Egg could do after his power reached its full potential. But hey, like with all good sequels, the stakes need to be raised. And the best way to do that is by giving the audience a villainous threat more dangerous than what we've seen before. Also, while on the search for Bolin, Korra and Mako had to work out some personal issues over Mako believing that Korra, being pampered for the Avatar, would make her fail to understand how he had to work for everything his entire life. But in reality, this was just sexual tension. In fact, unlike Aang and Katara, the writers this time are not going to be beating around the bush on the romance. As it appears, they are going to hit things between Korra and Mako right on the head. But this episode featuring a scene where Tenzin's daughters give Korra a hard time about her feelings for Mako in front of him. And later on in the episode, the two teenagers fall asleep leaning against each other. At the same time, the interaction between Korra and Mako revealed to us that Mako will probably be the strategist of the new team Avatar, since he was the one who pieced together the clues that allowed them to find Bolin at the Equalist rally. Plus, Mako being the strategist made he and Korra a great team, since he was able to direct Korra's headstrong, blunt force way of using her Avatar abilities in ways that gave them an advantage when it came to dangerous situations. Speaking of danger, remember how frightening I said it was to discover that the Equalist could temporarily take away a bender's abilities? Well, it turns out things are worse than I thought, as it is revealed that this series' big bad Aemon could take away the bender's ability permanently, which turns out to be a piece of information that Korra shares with leaving him shocked because he thought only the Avatar, as in his father, had the ability to spirit bend. And again, how Aemon is able to do this is beyond me, but the fact that he is perversing the ability that Aang uses as a symbol to instill peace in the world causes him to be symbolized as one nasty villain. Now with that thought in mind, I think Aemon is a descendant of the Fire Lord, as in a second family, he may have started after being, let's say, banished from the new kingdom that was created, and maybe Aang unintentionally transferred his spirit bending through the Fire Lord and into his descendants. 
Then somewhere down the road, like Zuko, or maybe one of his children, discover that the Fire Lord attempted to continue his legacy through someone else, and in a mad rage, attempted to kill all the descendants, except for a young Aemon, whose scars that were afflicted upon him acted as a reminder of what happened to Zuko at the hands of his father, the Fire Lord. However, right now, this is really all speculation on my part, or what we call affectionately on this show, a crackpot theory says there is holes in this bridge that I've come up with connecting the old Avatar series to the new one that could make me completely wrong. But what I am confident about is Eamon's parents, as well as Mako and Bolin's parents, were probably killed by the same firebender, just based on simplicity from a storytelling standpoint. So with that, I pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this episode of The Legend of Korra, along with your perspective on how Eamon learned the ability of spirit bending. Following the promising two-part season premiere, I wasn't really sure what to expect from the next installment of The Legend of Korra. But we were certainly off to a promising start after that great premiere. The cast, setting, and animation all seemed to click, and as far as character development was concerned, we're pretty well set. Yeah. However, apart from the pro-bending and Avatar training, it was still unclear before this episode what exactly the show was going to be about. We had been introduced to the big bad, but really had no notion of what he was or why he wanted to rid the world of benders. But in this week's episode, The Revelation, we were treated to a few more answers about Amon, the series' main villain that we were introduced to in the premiere. I thought the exposition about Amon's history why he hates Benders, and what he plans to do about it, were excellently done in this episode. The fact that he told the audience exactly what had happened to him, why he hates Benders, and what he plans to do makes sense in the way it was delivered, because you would expect a leader of a rebellion to speak to his followers, and give his own backstory to rally those followers to his cause. It was brilliantly done. And with Korra and Bolin having shared early signs of a budding friendship in the second episode, it was time for a trade-off this week by having Korra and Mako pair up to track down the missing Bolin. This seemed like a great way to get the reluctant twosome working together, and I really enjoyed their growing chemistry throughout the episode. I especially liked the detective angle they added here, and Korra's no-nonsense method of interrogation is definitely a welcome trait for the new Avatar. I liked seeing her that way. Yeah. Was it just me, or did they also seem to give Korra and Mako a little Aladdin and Jasmine vibe? Mako and Bolin are former street rats that are trying desperately to make it out of the streets and become pro-bending legends, but are not making enough money to even compete in the tournament. Yet Korra has has had everything given to her in her entire life. She's been taken care of, treated almost like a sheltered princess. Yeah. When Korra found out about Mako and Bolin's past, at first she was outraged. I half expected Mako to bust out into a song or at least say something like, you know, riffraff? Street rat? I don't buy that. If only they'd look closer. Would they see a poor boy? No siree. They'd find out there's so much more to me. And that's exactly where the Korra learns about Mako and Bolin. There's so much more to them. And that's where the Aladdin and Jasmine comparison ends. But I do like the idea that they are sort of star-crossed lovers. And it was classic Avatar when they woke up snuggling and they had a little Japanese anime freak out. But overall, that is where I see this story going, especially now that we know that Mako is not working for the Big Bad and will never, never be now that he tried to permanently take his brother's bending. I think that solidified the good guys and the bad guys in one fell swoop. We had mentioned last week that we thought maybe Mako was was kind of a secret agent. Somehow, you even suspected he could be Amon. 
Yeah. But I think we, well, we definitely proved that he was not Amon in this episode. Right. But we also showed that he's not going to be, he's going to, it's going to be very much like the first Avatar where the good guys are, are very much the same. Although we may find a, a, a turncoat later on, someone who right. will come from the bad guys to be a good guy, much like Zuko did in the original series. I th- think that's right. still a possibility. But the good guys and the bad guys, for the most part, have been set by this episode. I also felt kind of in this episode that they might need to bring in a non-bender character to be one of the heroes. I think absolutely. Just to kind of fit this idea that, you know, Aang wanted benders and non-benders to live together. Yes. And I feel like if they're going to defeat a group of non-benders or anti-benders or whoever, they need a non-bender to be going along with the Avatar's cause. I think they're also going to need a metal bender. I think they're going to befriend one of the city guard and he will become a member of their team when all out fighting begins. And so they will have the avatar. They have an earth bender. They have a fire bender. They probably need a legitimate water bender, a non bender, and I think a metal bender. And that'll round out the entire gang. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, Toph's daughter seemed old enough to have kids. Yeah, and I think if if she has kids, one of them may be the one that joins. Although yeah. I think if that's the case, because Tenzin's kids are, I think the oldest is is thirteen, yeah. maybe or or twelve, not quite a teenager. Because there, he still said, "When you become a teenager, please don't be like this." Yeah, she said, "I make no promises." That was great. Uh, yeah, I I think that because there was the idea that your idea that they were possibly former lovers or possibly had some sort of connection before that her kids wouldn't be old enough yet to be a part of this. Sure. So I think much like the airbender, Tenzin's kids, well, they're not old enough. The other thing is, how Aang was how old? He was 10. He was 10. So the oldest daughter could get thrown into the situation, she too. She could very easily, yes. Very much so could be a part of it. But maybe, maybe, and that's yeah. the way it comes in, is Tenzin's oldest and Toph's uh, daughter's eldest would also be brought into the mix, but I just don't know how they're going to yeah. make that happen. It doesn't fit the feel of this show. This exactly, because yeah. it does seem like a little bit older. So yeah. the people who grew up on Avatar who were, you know, 10 years old when Aang was 10 years old are now 14, 15, 15 16. Yeah. yeah, that age. And they're going to want somebody more their style or yeah. their age and, and, and facing things that they face, much like the Korra character is. That I could see the younger ones coming in, but I kind of feel that it's more of an older story. Right. Now, my final point was, I think Korra will be able to restore a person's bending abilities after Amon has taken them away. If she spirit bends to restore those abilities, which she will learn later when either Mako, probably Mako, or or Bolin has his bending ability taken by Amon. But there will be a few episodes where one of them has lost their abilities. But I foresee this as a season three story arc, and that will be cool that the Avatar can even overcome this ultimate threat, but I don't see it happening anytime soon, and we're going to be afraid of it for at least this full season, and I think all all of season two as well. And then ultimately in season three, it happens to one of the team members, and she has to find a way and focus her... She'll have started to learn the spirits and able to go through the spirit world as well as Aang did. And I think we will see her eventually learn 
that she can restore it, but it'll take a couple episodes. And I think that's awesome. And I think that could be a really cool way to finish out this story. I feel like she has to learn all four abilities of the Avatar and then learn it. Right. And like that's Aang why did. This, this whole season is, is focused on airbending. Right. So at the, by the end of this season, I think she will ultimately master airbending or at least get to the point where she is able to do airbending competently. Right. Well, and the then next- she will be able to move on to the spiritual aspect of the Avatar as Season two, she will learn that. And then once she is fully up and running as a potential avatar or pretty close to, season three will be that she has to learn this new skill. And I think that's where this story could go. Well, season two is titled Fire. It's under the title of Fire. So what I was thinking is that Korra gets her fire bending taken away because she's got to get it back. She has to relearn it. That's a cool idea. And then after she relearns it, then she figures out the next step is doing the spirit bending. Because if she can get it back to herself, she probably thinks to herself, well, maybe I can give it back to somebody else. Good call. And that's what does the spirit bending. I don't know. That's possible, too. Yeah. Let me just say, I'm loving this series and enjoying it thus far as much as the original and can't wait for more episodes each week. I'm exactly like you. I want to just sit at Netflix and watch the whole season, you know, like I did for the first series. Because it, it's driving me crazy. I mean, at the end of this, I have so many questions. Yeah. You know, like, I need to know now. I, and my mind has been going crazy all week. Just speculation left and right. All these ideas. Yes, and as you heard it at the end of my kind of synopsis for this episode. I was throwing all kinds of stuff at the fan. Yeah. And some of that, you know, honestly, I'm going to tell you, it's pretty, probably pretty ridiculous, but I'm having a good time throwing it at the fan. So I thought I'd just throw some of these things at you guys, give you something to think about. And Miko, I want to ask you, some of those things I threw out there or mentioned, are any of them possible, you think? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't know if it's, I, I, I definitely agree with you that Amon's family and Zuko's parents were killed by the same guy. That's, Oh, you mean Bolin and Mako? Yeah, what did I say? Zuko? Yeah, Zuko. Bolin and Mako. (laughs) Yeah, Bolin and Mako's and Oman's families were killed by the same people. Same firebender. And that makes perfect sense. I I do think that one is probably your most likely to be 100% accurate. I'm not sure about whether or not Amon is a descendant of Zuko's father, the, the former Fire Lord. That's definitely a possibility. He seems to be the right age to be the eldest of a second family. If, if the Fire Lord had had started a second family when, you know, many years after Aang had defeated him, then it would be about time that he's, you know, mid thirties or forties and, and ready to lead this revolution. He's not going to be leading the revolution if he is 20 years old. Just nobody's going to follow him, you know, but if he's older and has been around. So I think that this could very well be that case, but it's a little out there. You know, that's one of those ones that stuck and is starting to slide down yeah. and we're, we're not sure if it's going to stop sliding or it's going to make it, you know, fall completely off the wall. But I like the idea. I like the idea. And I like the fact that you're throwing all these theories up on the wall and seeing <laughs> what will stick. It, it's good. I, I think that that shows the depth of this show. This yeah. kids show that is so you, much you, more than a kids show. But you come up with all this crazy stuff with it and how it connects. And I mean, this this show just has such great backstory. That's what's amazing about it. And now they've added backstory upon backstory with this 70-year jump between the first series to the second series. So that's just awesome. I mean, that's 
And really, my theory about the Fire Lord kind of was, I know they look at a lot of different cultures and myths and religion to coming up with the plot lines for these Avatar shows. And one of the things I thought of was like the idea of the Mark of Cain, you know, that God marked Cain and forever he, you know, was marked like with the demon mark, he was an outsider. So I felt that the idea of the Fire Lord getting his abilities taken away by Aang was like him being marked with the mark of Cain. And because okay. he had no power, Aang and Zuko, because they probably, you know, obviously Aang didn't want to kill him. So he probably felt without your powers, you're not a threat anymore. You have to leave the island. And when he left, he created his own plan or whatever. And maybe Zuko or somebody found out about it down the road and were angry that they felt that they didn't deserve happiness because of what the Fire Lord did. And then everything happened. Then Eamon was the survivor of that clan or whatever. It's possible. I don't know. I mean, there's a bunch of things floating around. I know. I think it more likely that the guy who ended up going after Amon's family was a rogue firebender as opposed to it being someone in Zuko's or Aang's line or even associated with them because it seems the death and killing of essentially innocents even if they are descendants of the former fire lord is so far outside of the scope of something that ang or zuko would do even in anger they would not kill he took away his power rather than kill him so we don't foresee ang ever killing especially not out of anger and so we just don't see that And so I think anybody who's associated with him would have been indoctrinated in the same theory. So I think that it's probably someone completely different. But maybe Amon holds all benders under the Avatar or thinks all of them take orders from the Avatar, or or thought that maybe at that time all of them were reunited under the Avatar. So he blames the Avatar just as much as he blames the actual individual who did it. So I could see that as being Amon's view, but I don't see it as being the truth. Yeah, it's like someone said that they did it in the name of the Avatar, but that's not necessarily what Aang wanted. Or it was just some rogue guy who late thought, oh god, I just killed an entire village of people. I must, I gotta say I did it under the Avatar's watch. Well, well the big thing I, I want to throw out there, the reason why I'm throwing Zuko or the sentence of Zuko out there, is that Dante Bosco, who did the voice of Zuko, the episode that he will be returning to the series on, as an unspecified character at this point, is entitled Skeletons in the Closet. So some Somebody, a past character, did something that they wanted to keep kept secret. I don't, whatever that is, I don't know, but somebody screwed up or something. Okay. I don't know. I, I really honestly don't know. Main thing I can say for us now, we're just excited about the show and love talking about it. And really could go on quite a bit, but again, we're kind of running out of time here. And again, we're just kind of going to leave this as a to be continued for you guys, as we're kind of going to go on a quick hiatus with our coverage of Legend of Korra, with Once Upon a Time coming back, and Person of Interest coming back, and us gearing up for season finales of the other live action shows we cover. We're going to put Legend of Korra on the back burner for probably about three or four weeks, and then we're going to jump back with it, with an episode probably entirely dedicated to Legend of Korra. And then from there on out, we'll be covering all new episodes of the show on a weekly basis. So with that, Nico, are you ready to move on to the closing? Indeed. All right, take it away with what's coming up next week. On next week's episode, Castle is taking the week off, but Once Upon a Time, Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest are back. We also will be keeping up on our reviews of Bones, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as giving you our favorite comedic moments from next week's episode of Community, but unfortunately not Modern Family because, like Castle, it is also on a brief hiatus. By the way, if you're looking for our reviews of Green Lantern, the animated series, and Young Justice, be sure to check out our DC Nation podcast, hosted by Dan and Michael, also available on our website and iTunes. 
Also, if you'd like, check out Across the Airways Retro Reviews, which now is going to be dedicated to doing reviews on previous TV series that we've loved, including Chuck, Smallville, Supernatural, and more. So check out that, and that's hosted by the infamous co-host of the DC Nation podcast, Michael J. Petty, and his partner in crime, Woo Kim. So check that out. It's really great. You can also check out our Road to the Avengers podcast miniseries, which is just completed with our commentary on Captain America the First Avengers. Again, basically, along with that commentary, Michael and I have a bunch of commentaries for you guys as we watched in order all of the films connected to the highly anticipated Avengers movie coming out on May 4th, which we are just really, really pumped up about. And also coming soon will be a podcast miniseries called Road to the Dark Knight Rises, where we will be covering Batman Begins and the Dark Knight to lead up to the release of the Dark Knight Rises. So check that out. Also, if you'd like to talk to us about any of the amazing theories you have, got Legend of Korra, any of the live-action shows we cover, the DC Nation shows, or any thoughts you have about the Avengers coming out, feel free to contact us in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Also, you can like us on Facebook. And through doing that, you can access all of the movie and TV news that Nico finds out during the week and also be kept updated on our podcast releases. And you can also do that by following us on Twitter. And our Twitter is Across Airways. There's no the in there. It's just Across Airways. And you can also follow our podcast and keep up to date on Nico's news as well as our podcast releases by being a part of our Google Plus page. Also, if you'd like, you can send us a voicemail with your crackpot theories that we will play on air. Then what's that number, Nico? 773-809-3363. Also, if you'd like, check out our YouTube channels, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming movie and television show releases, Nico's News with Nico video podcast episodes, and also newly added to our YouTube channel is a playlist featuring all the DC Nation shorts that are played a part of Cartoon Network's DC Nation programming block. So check out all the shorts from DC Nation now on our YouTube channel. You can download our Android app by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page. By clicking that link, you can contact us as well as access all of our podcast episodes through your cellular phone so once again for our across the airways retro reviews host michael j petty and luke kim i'm dan schmidt and i'm nico reister and until next week we'll catch you on the airways the guys enjoy the lead up to the season finales see ya on your hips. Well secluded With a bit of a mind You're into the time slip And nothing can ever be the same It's based on a sensation Like an understanding Let's do the 
Now return to our regularly scheduled program.